you for joining us today here at Victory. At Victory Church, we are a community of authentic, spirit-led Christ followers transformed to walk in victory. Join us as we begin today's message. I love that song. It's love. It is reckless. It is it's scandalous. Scandalous love and grace. And, and I think that's one of those songs that just kind of captures it so well. And... Um, and when we sing those songs too, you know, whether it's before service, after, and with, in your car, whatever, man, you can be alone in your car and raising your hand, and it's a worship service right there with you and God. Um, just know, man, this, it's, not, it's not a song. That is a declaration to God. That's a declaration that He loves us so much. And then we are declaring that and remembering that and believing that, that He loves us. And He's right there with us. And yeah. God is good, isn't He? That is so good. So good, and so uh, so. If you're just now joining us, or if you if you missed last week, um, we kicked off a brand new series in the Book of Judges last week. And this Book of Judges, it's about a group of people called the Israelites, who time and time again throughout the course of history struggle with this chronic bout, this chronic issue of forgetfulness. Because time and time and time again, all throughout, not just this book, but the Old Testament, really the whole Bible, but specifically the Old Testament, we see them forgetting, forgetting who God is what he's truly done for them, and who he's called them to be. And because of this, as a result of it, it ends up leading time and time again to their own demise, to their own self-destruction. And because of that, more specifically because of God's scandalous, never-ending, never-stopping love and grace for his people, he continues to raise up judges or deliverers to save them. And that's what we see happening time and time again in this book of Judges. And so when we kicked this off last week, the major topic or theme, if you will, that we dove into was forgetfulness. And so if you missed that sermon, it kind of helps set the foundation for a lot of the stuff we're going to be talking about today and the rest of the series. You won't be uh, lost, but it will help you to go back and listen to that, so I encourage you to do that. But we focused specifically on forgetting, and more specifically, what happens when we forget. When we forget who God is, what he's done for us, and who he's called us to be, like the Israelites did time and time again. The big idea that we dove into last week was this. Only continual remembrance and obedience to Christ will lead to godly living. Only continual remembrance and obedience to Christ will lead to godly living. So that's where we've been so far in this series. Again, we just kicked it off last week. This week, we're going to be focusing, kind of honing in on another topic, which is on our desires. And so when we think of this word desires, I want you to kind of go and imagine with me in your head something that pops into your, whatever it is that pops into your head when you hear this word desires. And more specifically, what a desire is that you have, a personal desire that pops into your head when when you hear this. And a lot of times it could be something like, especially this time of the day where church service and we're just starting the sermon and we're approaching lunchtime. So for some people, it might be like your favorite restaurant that you can't wait to get to after lunch. And you're sitting there thinking, dude, when is this guy going to be done? Like, I cannot wait to get to this restaurant. I hope not, but that might be somebody in here or getting to like that juicy steak or that hamburger or like this double chocolate fudge brownie ice cream with whipped cream and a cherry on top or something. Hopefully not. That could be somebody in here like, that is my desire after church. Or, Or it could be like a material possession. Maybe it's a car or a house. Or it could be a person could be a job, a career, success, goals, money, what, I mean, all kinds of different things. And the point is this, the point is this, more often than not, when we're honest with ourselves, 
most of the time, when we think about this word desire, and, and more specifically, when we think about the things that we desire on a consistent basis, and that we chase after on a consistent basis, usually they are very self-centered, self-gratifying, me-focused, aren't they? If we're honest with ourselves, they really are. They're kind of self-centered, me-focused desires that we usually have and that we usually chase after in life. And it's not even that they're always bad things. Like, I mean, yeah, sure, we can have bad desires, you know, with drugs, alcohol, whatever, all kinds of different things. But a lot of times it could be good things that we are really chasing after and desiring with a passion. It could be ministry. It could be telling people about Jesus. It could be spending time with family. It could be really good things. But what happens is when we're not careful, most of the time what happens is we start chasing after these desires, catch this, for the wrong reasons. And as we chase after these desires for the wrong reasons, we start elevating these things to a place in our life that they were never meant to be. More specifically to the place of God in our life. And because of that, it's so important for us to, to understand, to know, and, and really to live out the big idea that we're going to be diving into today, which is the fact that we are called to seek God-glorifying desires. We're called to seek God-glorifying desires. And guys, when we don't, when we continue to pursue, to chase after uh, self-gratifying, self-glorifying me focused desires on a consistent basis then history not not subjective opinion history shows us time and time and time and time again where this leads it leads to pain it leads to self-destruction along with pain and, and destruction from so many people around us and usually it's the people that are closest to us that we love the most because we start the things that happen in our life start flooding out over onto their lives but worst off, the worst thing that it leads to time and time again is separation from God. When we chase after self-satisfying, self-gratifying desires rather than God-glorifying desires. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for being here with us on a consistent basis. I pray that you help us to know and to understand the fact that you are, you are right here with us. That you love us so much. I pray that you, you help us as we dive into this text today that you, you would transform our lives, that you would open our minds and our hearts and that you would teach us and mold us more and more into the image of your son, Jesus. We thank you so much, Jesus, for the cross. We thank you for the gospel and for what you've done for us, which is the, the only reason that we have any reason whatsoever to, to be thankful and to be joyful, including times like Christmas, but every single moment of every single day of our life. It's all because of you and what you have done for us. Help us to see that time and time again, just like the Israelites, we have, we have forgotten about you and neglected you. And the gospel isn't a story about God being overbearing and, and you know, forcing us to make this decision. It's a story about a loving father who loves us so much, dies for us in our place so that we can have the opportunity to respond to you. Help us to see the fact that you are right there, standing there with arms open wide, just ready for us, waiting for us to jump into your arms waiting for us to surrender to your overwhelming love and your overwhelming grace. 
And I pray for that gift of salvation. If there's anybody here today that's never responded, I pray that you, you would perform that miracle of salvation, open their eyes, open their hearts to your grace, and that you would save them right here, right now. And as we pray every week, I pray that for those of us, including myself as Christians, that are following you imperfectly, but following you because we're saved by your grace, I pray that you would, you would continue to grow us and help remind us that we're not done yet. And thank God you're not finished with us yet. We thank you so much. And we love you. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you just take over the sermon, make and mold us. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Um, so last week, again, we, we dove into, for the first time, this series in Judges. We, we covered the first two chapters in this series. Again, if you didn't uh, catch that series, go back, or that sermon, go back, listen to that. Um, it, it'll help you kind of set the foundation a little bit. So we covered the first two chapters. If you got your Bible, you can go ahead and break it open in Judges chapter 3. That's where we're going to be at today. If you don't have your Bible, we'll have it up on the screen. But one of the things that we talked about last week it is the history of the Israelites prior to Judges. Because when you first open up this book, you, you, you read even the first chapter, you're introduced to these people called the Israelites. But what we have to understand is this is not the first time that these guys, this group of people come onto the scene. They have a very long, long history prior to this. And so we dove into a lot of that history. So, so I won't go into all of those details this week. We went into a lot of it last week. Listen to that. Better yet, even, even read it too for yourself. A lot of stuff happened. Uh, a couple quick things that I want to remind us about, though, because this is important. It kind of carries through throughout the book. Is if you remember Egyptian, or, uh, Egypt, the Israelites in Egypt, how they were in bondage. They were in slavery in Egypt. Um, they were treated horribly. It was forced labor. Horrible, horrible situation. Went on for a very long, long time. Hundreds of years. Horrible situation. And then God miraculously delivers them. He saves them from Egypt through a series of plagues and, and supernatural miracles time and time again. Then he leads them to this place called the promised land, which the word tells us is flowing with milk and honey. Common day lingo, it means it is awesome. It's legit. It's like paradise on earth. And it's all for them. And so we won't go into the whole story. The first time they get there, they like essentially develop spiritual amnesia and decide to take like, you know, a wilderness journey for 40 years. You know, who, who knows why? They be, they essentially, they just develop spiritual amnesia. Second time they get there, they step into this promised land God has for them. And um, when they get into this promised land that God has for them, incredible paradise on earth, God gives them this command. And this is the command. He says, I want you to drive out all the inhabitants of that land. So it's this, this pretty big territory, this land of Canaan. And I want you to drop every single person, every single people group out of that land. Have nothing to do with them, right? Wipe them all out. And at first when we read passages like this and we, we don't really, we just kind of skim through it and don't dive in deep, it, it seems like God's being mean. Like, it really seems like he's being mean and overbearing. It's like, why in the world would you say that? Like, like God, this is their home. Why would you want us to kick them out? And isn't this like an incredible witness opportunity where we could tell them about you? Like, and that's what happens when we just kind of skim through passages like this and we don't dive in deep. But, but what we understand contextually when we dive in a little deeper, the people in this land and the land in Canaan, man, these were bad 
bad, 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 evil people. Like, these were the kind of people that the people in prison right now for like, like, like murder and theft and whatnot, they'd be looking at these people going, dude, those are some bad dudes. How in the world did they do that? Like these were horrible people. The kind of things that these people would do on like a regular, almost everyday, weekly basis, not even the worst of the worst, just, just this was the norm. Things like child sacrifice, like throwing their kids into fire, sacrificing them to God. That was normal. That's what you did. We're going to go throw the baby in the fire. Crazy. You know, and they would do other things like, like rape and incest. These were common practices, things that happen on a normal, almost daily type of basis. So, so God wasn't being mean. He wasn't being vindictive, this evil dictator sitting up on his throne. This was God protecting them. See, we talked about last week, we see through tiny little peepholes, but God sees the bigger picture. And he knew exactly what would happen if they allowed these people to stay in that land. They would become intermingled with these people. They would be swayed and influenced by these people. And they, more importantly, they would become like these people. Horrible, horrible, corrupt people. So he wasn't being mean. He wasn't being evil. He was trying to protect them. He's trying to protect them. And we talked about last week how that's, that's what God does. That's the reason for commands and rules we ask. Like, why are these commands? What up, what's up with the, the Ten Commandments and all these rules? And that's why. It's not God being evil. It's not him being vindictive. It's not him being an evil dictator. It's because he loves us and he wants to protect us. And so we talked about that last week. And then something else we talked about was this guy named Joshua. And so God raises up this man named Joshua. So Moses dies right? Moses dies. Joshua's been around for a little while at that point in time, but when Moses dies, God calls Joshua to lead this entire nation of Israel. And so you think about Joshua, if you, a lot of times we have this statement up in our houses, like all of us have heard this, seen this, some of us have it up on our houses, choose this day who you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Like that's Joshua, that Joshua's the one who said that but more importantly, it's not, he's not just the dude that said that. Because sometimes people will say really cool things. It's like, man, that sounds awesome. But, but what we have to understand is this is how this dude lived his life. Like, he was a guy that honestly wasn't perfect. No perfect people other than Jesus, okay? I am imperfect. This is a room full of imperfect people. So if you are imperfect, if you got flaws, you are in the right place, okay? I'm just, just telling you. No perfect people other than Jesus, all right? But, but this guy loved God. And even through his imperfections, he moved in God's directions. He trusted God, and he led the entire nation of Israel to do the same, to trust him and to obey him. And then we talked about the Jericho account. The walls fell down. They stepped into the promised land, finally step into that promised land there at Jericho for the first time. And they take God's command seriously and, and obey him. They win victory after victory after victory. Things are going great. Not perfect, but great. And they're trusting God, leaning into God, and then, and then uh, Joshua dies. And after Joshua dies, there's this generation that's there when Joshua dies. It's the elders that were there, the leaders that were there. They kind of continue leading Israel in somewhat the same way as Joshua to obey God and follow him. But at some point in time, they start kind of straddling the fence. And so they trust him and they move in his direction, but they also start kind of doing their own thing on the side too. And that fence straddling generation ended up birthing another generation that was even worse so in other words it got worse and worse and worse we talked about the importance of discipling our kids man because it just gets worse and worse and worse and and so this generation fast forward a couple generations after joshua's generation and we've gone from a generation of people that love god not perfect but love god moving in his direction they're following him victory after victory after victory things are going great all of a sudden you've got a generation a couple generations later that have completely abandoned god 
They've neglected him. They've essentially forgotten you know, about him because they're neglecting him, not even wanting to think about him, everything that he's done for them, who he's called them to be. And they are living in complete disobedience, essentially chasing after their own self-gratifying, self-centered, me-focused desires. And this is where we pick up Judges chapter 3, verse 4. And so, quick reminder, before we dive into this, so it makes sense. So, at this point in time, remember, God gave them the command with Joshua and all of them, and they enter the promised land. A couple generations before, they enter the promised land, and God tells them to wipe out all the inhabitants. We talked about why, right? To wipe out all the inhabitants. But what we're going to find is, God actually intentionally left some of those inhabitants, some of those people groups in that land of Canaan. So check this out. Judges 3, verse 4, this is where we pick up. It says, the Lord left them, talking about some of the people in the land, left them intentionally, here's why, to test Israel. He left some of the people in the land to test Israel. Two, here's why, to determine if they would keep the Lord's commands he had given them, uh, given their fathers through Moses. So, so I want to pause here for just a moment, and I want to hit on, on something here. See, a lot of times in life, God will intentionally allow things to happen or allow things to remain in our life, and he does it intentionally as a way of testing us. And I'm not saying that we can go around blaming God for all these bad things that happen to us, okay? That, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that God will allow things to happen and will allow things to persist, remain, maybe it's struggles or something in your life as a way of testing us. And the reason is this, ultimately he wants to know something. He wants to know, do you really trust me? Do you really trust me? And I'm not talking about like when, when, when times are good, when you got that job that you like doing and, and, and it's going well and, and the finances are coming in, the bills are being paid, the kids are listening, right? And, and things seem to be meshing well, not perfect, but seems th- things seem to be meshing well. I'm not just talking about in those times. I'm talking about when the rubber meets the road, man, like, like when it's hard, when it's difficult, when you lose that job that you were relying on, when, when somebody says something that, that's hard and hurtful, maybe, maybe somebody presses on a, on a soft spot, so you're reminded of a failure in your life or someone else that failed you in your life and it just hurts, or there's this struggle that persists in your life and you're crying out to God saying, hey, why don't you take this from me? Maybe it's like a pain or... Or, 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 or a, a mental thing or a psychological something in our life. And it's like, God, why don't you take this from me and help me? And, he, and it's persisting as we continue to pray. It just continues to persist. And one of the examples that we, we see of that specifically is with Paul. If you think about 2 Corinthians, um, 2 Corinthians 12, when Paul's talking about that, that thorn in the flesh that he has. He says, I had a thorn in the flesh. And it, he doesn't tell us what it is. He doesn't tell us what, so it could be all kinds of different things. A lot of commentators think it was physical related because this dude went through all kinds of crazy things. See, that, that same uh, book, 2 Corinthians, you, you just go back one chapter, chapter 11. You can read out all these things that happened to Paul. Man, I mean, shipwrecked three times. This dude was beaten on numerous times, like horribly beaten and they didn't have the kind of like physical therapy and and medication things like that that we have today horrible things and so this dude is is constantly in chronic pain okay um from things bones are probably broken didn't heal back right most commentators think that paul actually probably walked around like with a limp in pain looked disabled looked probably very uncomfortable because he was and he was also half blind right and so it could have been physical 
or it could have been like mental. And talking about like PTSD, man, this dude did some horrible things. Horrible things. I mean, he, he literally he was like a ringleader for this push, this giant massive push from these Jewish people to, to persecute and have Christians killed. I mean, he was like the leader. I mean, he sought out special permission to continue going to other places to continue persecuting these people to bring them back and essentially have them killed prior to becoming a Christian. So it could have been like PTSD and, and struggling with that and the horrors of what he'd done. We don't know. We don't know what it was. We just know that he had a thorn in the flesh. He was struggling with it. He cried out three times, God, take this from me. To help me with it. Take this from me. And what did God do? He said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. He didn't take it from him. And see, often, a lot of times, man, that, those kind of things happen in our lives. And it's different things, physical, mental, whatever, situational. But something we have to understand is he, he leaves these things in our life as a way to test us. But it's not to test us so he can find out where our heart is. So he can find out how much we trust him. Because he already knows, man. He knows our hearts. He knows how much we trust him. He does this as a way to show us how much we trust him. He does this to show us where we actually already are in our relationship with him. It's almost like a mirror to show us, hey, look, look, this is where you're at. This is how you're struggling. This is a weak area in your life, and it's not to belittle us or to push us down or anything. It's, it's the opposite. It's to show us, it's like, buddy or, or baby girl, I want to show you this because I want to help you. I want to help you, and I want to grow you stronger in this area. So two reasons. Two reasons God does this kind of stuff. He tests us. First, to show us those weak areas in our life. Second, to grow us in those weak areas in our life, to, grow, to show us and to grow us. But check out what the Israelites did with this test from God. So remember, this is a test from God. They're supposed to drive out all these people. He leaves some of these people, God does intentionally, to test them, to show them and to grow them. But they're supposed to continue pushing these people back. Check out what they do. Verse 5. But they settled among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Parasites, pe para Parasites, yeah. <laughs> oh, Hivites, a lot of ites, man. What's up with these names? And Jebusites, yeah. So anyways, they settled with these people. So in other words, instead of driving them out like God commanded them, they sprinted 180 degrees in the opposite direction. They set up camp with these people. They straight up like set up communities with these people, started doing life with them, integrating with them, best friends, like family, right there together with these people, completely polar opposite. It could not have been more opposite from what God had told them to do. And remember, he commanded this for their own protection, for their own good, and they're sprinting in the opposite direction. But if you think that's bad enough, check out verse 6, man. This just gets worse. It says, the Israelites then, check this out, um, took their daughters, these other people's daughters as wives. So they start intermarrying with these people and having kids with them. And then it keeps on going. And then they gave their own daughters away in marriage to them. So I was like, hey, yeah, I'm going to marry your family. We're going to do life together. We'll be best friends. We'll be family, have kids. And, and here, take my daughter too. Why don't you marry my daughter as well? I mean, it gets crazy. And then on top of that, if that's not bad enough, they then prostitute themselves out to these other gods. They start worshiping these other gods. And so what's happened is they fully integrated with these people. You couldn't even tell the difference between the Israelites, these other people. They've almost become just like them. 
in so many ways and married into them, having kids, having grandkids with these people. Instead of following after God, what are they doing? They're chasing, sprinting after their own desires. And why is that? It's because, catch this, their hearts are self-centered and not God-centered. Their hearts are self-centered and not God-centered. And, and check, out, check out what Jesus says about what happens when we start chasing after our own desires. Ch- check out what he says. This is, this is Jesus' words. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And what we have to understand is, guys, the desires that we chase after, the things that you, that you long for and that you crave more than anything with a passion, those are our treasures, okay? Those are the things that we treasure, that we value more than anything else in our life, right? And then taking Jesus' words, not mine, nobody else's, this is Jesus' words, where those treasures are, there your heart will be also. In other words, those things become the very thing that your heart and the rest of your life, every aspect of your life starts to become centered on. Those desires that we chase over, chase after in the place of, over and above God. And and as we're talking about desires, something I want to hit on real quick too is, guys, we have to understand that desires in and of themselves are not bad. Desires aren't bad. I want you to leave here today saying, man, that pastor talked about how we shouldn't have any desires. We should be like robots going around with no emotion, expressionless, no desires whatsoever because that desires are bad. That is, that is not what I am saying, okay? That's not what I'm saying. In fact, desires are, are given to us by God. Like we are created with the ability, the, the opportunity, the blessing to be able to desire. And, and the reason that we're created that way because God's that way. Like, like we're created in the image of God, the imago de, the image and the likeness of God. And one of the likenesses that we share with God is the fact that we are able to desire like God is able to desire. And if, in fact, if you want to know what God desires more than anything else in the entire universe, what God desires and longs for more than anything else, catch this, it's you. It's you, it's, it's your heart. It's an intimate love relationship with you. He longs for you to trust him and move in his direction so that he can just take you under his wing and treat you as a loving father, as your little, as his little boy or his little girl. That's what he longs for. That's what he desires more than anything else. So desires in and of themselves aren't bad, guys. Desires aren't bad. It's, it's the things that we desire oftentimes that are bad. The desire, desire in and of itself is not bad. It's the things that we desire that are bad. We desire constantly on a continual basis the wrong things because rather than seeking God-glorifying desires, we're seeking self-glorifying, self-centered, me-focused desires. It's all about the person that I see in the mirror. My wants, my needs, my desires. And that's exactly what happened with the Israelites time and time and time again. They continued to chase after their own desires. And check out where it led them. Verse 7, it says, The Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They forgot the Lord their God, forgot, continually forgetting the Lord their God, and worshipped the Baals and the Asherahs. The, Lord, the Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he sold them to King Cushan Ristham of Aram. 
Aram Nethaharim, and the Israelites served him, catch this, eight years. Eight years. So where did chasing after their own self-gratifying, self-centered, selfish desires, where did that lead them? It led them right back to bondage, right back to slavery. Remember that God had delivered them just a couple generations ago. It hasn't been that long. He delivered them from bondage and from slavery from Egypt, right? He delivered them. They were were free, and he gave them this promised land. He blessed them exponentially time and time again. Things weren't perfect, but they were going so well. And now they're right back, almost a square one, back in bondage and slavery all over again. And and something that's really interesting, too, this king that that they're enslaved to, catch this, his name, his his title, it actually means double darkness. That's what his his name means. It means double darkness. So they have gone from a freed people. They have been freed by God. They're in paradise. Victory after victory after victory. Things are going great. To now they are back, essentially to square one, back in slavery and bondage all over again. But now they're in slavery and in bondage to double darkness. And check out what happens next in verse 9. It says, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. So the Lord raised up Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's youngest brother, as a deliverer to save the Israelites. The spirit of the Lord came on him, and he judged Israel. Othniel went out to battle, and the Lord handed over King Cushan Rishantham of Aram to him, so that Othniel overpowered him. Then the land had peace for 40 years, and Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. And, and don't miss what, what happened in this story, man. Like, don't confuse this. This isn't a story about a man named Othniel saving this nation of Israel. This is about God, the true Savior, the true Deliverer, using a man to save his nation. That's what this is about. That's what the whole book of Judges is about. It's about the true Deliverer, the true Savior, God, the God of the universe, using men, un- I mean, ordinary, unqualified men like Othniel to save his nation. And something, the little bit that we know about this guy, Othniel, is this guy was a, a good guy from a good family. He was a good guy from a good family. In fact, it, it tells us that his uncle was Caleb. And so if you remember, we kind of rewind time from where we're at, rewind a couple generations, really one generation back. Caleb was one of the spies that was sent out when the Israelites first got to the promised land, the very first time. So they get to this promised land. Remember, they're free from Egypt, Mount Sinai experience. They get the law, the Ten Commandments. They go to the promised land. They get there, and so Moses sends out several guys to essentially recon the land. Like, let us know what's going on, what we're about to go up against, right? So he sends out all these men to recon the land as spies, right? And so all these guys come back, and they report what they've seen, but every single one of them, except for two, every single one of them says, there's no way. We can't take it. Like, these three people are huge. Like, I mean, there is no way that we can take it. They will destroy us. And then what happens is the entire nation of Israel, because of what these people say, all of them except for two, the entire nation of Israel starts, like, complaining and crying, literally to the point where they start wishing they had never left Egypt. Like, they wish they were back in bondage, back in slavery. We should have just died in Egypt. Moses, why did you bring us out of captivity? That's how crazy this got. And what's really crazy about this situation, too, is what they were up against in this promised land, and these people, all they had to do was step into it and trust God. This was nothing. This was nothing compared to what God had just done. 
God had literally just defied, I mean, Egypt, the man that was over all of Egypt and his army. And time and time again, it provided for them miraculously, miracles, constant miracles. So this was nothing, but it's like they developed spiritual amnesia and essentially forgot everything that God had just done for them. Sound like anybody else? Sounds like these other people, Israelites, and us so often too. But the two men, I told you there were two men um, that trusted God. These two men, there were only two of the spies that trusted God, and they told everybody else, even though everybody else was turning against God and didn't believe that he could do it, didn't, they lost faith in God. These two men said, no, no, we can do this. And more importantly, God can do this. This is the land that God promised for us. God will give us this land. Let's go take it. Let's go right now. Let's go take this. So two men, even though the entire nation turned their back on God, they continued to follow after God. And the two men were Joshua and Othniel's uncle, Caleb. Those were the two men, and those were the only two men in that entire generation that were allowed into the promised land as a result of that. And so this is how Othniel was raised. He was raised, you know, in this family, especially with his uncle, to trust and to follow God. No matter what, no matter what everybody else is doing around you, trust God, follow God. And that's exactly what he did as the entire nation. You fast forward to this generation that we're diving into and we're talking about now. Everybody else, all these other people, this entire nation is just integrating with these other people, completely sprinting in the opposite direction from God, chasing, sprinting after their own desires rather than after God. But what's Othniel doing? He's continuing to follow God. He was raised that way and he grew up that way. And now God is using him as a deliverer to save this entire nation and to bring this entire nation back to God. And throughout Othniel's life, the rest of his life and throughout his leadership, this nation had peace in that land because they were seeking after God glorifying desires rather than their own personal, selfish, me-focused desires. But as we know, as history so often has a time of as a way of like repeating itself over and over and over again, mainly because we just don't learn from our past mistakes. Like so often we, we don't learn from our past mistakes. And, and sometimes it's not our past mistakes. Sometimes it could be our, like our forefathers' past mistakes. And we just continue doing our own thing, chasing after our own desires. And so often that happens, and that's exactly what happened to the Israelites time and time and time again. So Othniel, God raises up Othniel. He saves this whole nation, brings them back to God. They have peace in the land. Everything is going good again. But then once again, with the next generation, what happens? It says the Israelites again, verse 12, did what was evil in the Lord's sight. Once again, they're continuing to forget this crazy cycle repeating itself over and over and over. It says, He, God, gave King Eglon of Moab power over Israel because they had done what was evil in the Lord's sight. After Eglon convinced the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join forces with him, he attacked and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. So catch that, city of Palms. The Israelites served King Eglon of Moab, catch this, 18 years. 18 years. Once again, this, this chronic issue, this chronic struggle of forgetfulness, once again setting in, forgetting who God is, the God of the universe, created the universe and everything in it, including us, sustains the universe and everything in it, including us. 
And what he's done for them, he's he's saved them miraculous through miracles, time and time and time again through, I mean, hundreds, thousands of years. He's continued to provide for them supernatural ways and forgetting who he's called them to be, which is his people that he loves and that he wants to take care of and that he wants to provide for. If they continue to forget this and they continue chasing after their own selfish desires in the opposite direction of God, completely neglecting him, completely abandoning him, and essentially forgetting about him all together, which lands them in the same place that it continues to land them generation after generation after generation, right back into bondage, right back into slavery. But this time, rather than eight years to double darkness, it's 18 years, 18 years of slavery. And if that's not enough, don't, don't miss the part in this text where it mentions the city of Palms. Because the city of Palms is significant, and, and this is why. Because the city of Palms is Jericho. The city of Palms is Jericho. And if you rewind the tape back, Jericho is the very first place that the Israelites ever stepped into. When they first stepped into the promised land, their forefathers, generations ago, first stepped into the promised land. Very first time ever. It was because they took Jericho. This was like the spot, and they remember this. They grew up hearing these stories and what happened in the battle of Jericho and the walls falling, and they're finally able to step into the promised land for the first time. As free people, they hadn't had their land, and now for the first time ever, they as a nation have their own land, and it started in Jericho. And now, not only are they right back in bondage, right back in slavery for 18 years, they've taken Jericho from them this is their rock bottom man this is like this is like rock bottom bottom of the pit essentially looking up from this pit wondering how in the world did we get there how could we let this happen how could we let this happen man anybody ever been there before that rock bottom almost like bottom of the pit looking up wondering how in the world did I get there how did how could I let this happen And that might even be somebody in here today. You might be that person that's at your rock bottom and wondering, how did I get there? How did I let this happen? And what do I do? What am I supposed to do? Is there any hope? What am I supposed to do now? And if that's you, if that's you, then check out how the Israelites responded in their rock bottom, bottom of the pit experience. This is Judges 3.15. It says, then the Israelites, catch this, cried out, to the Lord. They cried out to the Lord, and he raised up Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed, catch that, left-handed Benjamite, as a deliverer for them. The Israelites sent him with a tribute for King Eglon of Mohad. So how did the Israelites respond? At the bottom of the pit, when it seems like everything is hopeless, everything has been taken from them, what do they do? They cried out to the Lord. They cried out to him, and then how did God respond? He raised up another deliverer. He raised up another judge to save them. After everything that they've done, time and time again, they continue to forget who he is, what he's done for them, who he's called them to. They continue to neglect them, sprint in the opposite direction. And what we have to understand is these are different people, different generations all throughout the course of history, but the same God. The same God that is commanding them, that is helping them, that is saving them, delivering them, providing for them, performing miracles. 
And yet time and time again, he is seeing them doing this same crazy stuff, sprinting in the opposite direction. But even though they continue to sprint in the opposite direction of God, what does God continue to do with them? He continues to pursue them. He continues to pursue them. And as soon as they cry out to him, no matter what they've done, no matter how long it's gone on, no matter how many times, as soon as they cry out to him, he's right there to catch them. He's right there to help them, save them, and provide for them. Hear me on this. Regardless of your past, regardless of what you have or have not done, regardless of the pit that you might even find yourself in today, God loves you. He is right there with you. He has not left you. He will never leave you. As long as you have breath in your lungs, he will not leave you. He will not stop pursuing you. And he's right there to catch you as soon as you cry out to him. He's a loving father that is just standing there with arms open wide, just waiting for you to take those inches of, st- uh, of faith. He doesn't, he doesn't ask for like miles of faith from us. He asks for the inches and he does the rest. It's that picture of the prodigal son. And the father in that story, that's a picture of God. He is standing there waiting with arms open wide, regardless of everything that we've done, regardless how many times, regardless of how long. He's just waiting for us to step in his direction and to cry out to him. And as soon as we do, he's there to catch us. And check out how God works through Israel's second judge, catches them, saves them, provides for them, yet again by delivering them through this other judge, Ehud. This is verse 16. It says, Ehud made himself a double-edged sword, 18 inches long. He strapped it to his right thigh under his clothes and brought the tribute to King Eglon of Moab, who was an extremely fat man. I'm just reading the text, man. He's an extremely fat dude. So when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he dismissed the people who had carried it. At the carved images near Gilgal, he returned and said, King Eglon, I have a secret message for you. The king said, silence, and all his attendants left him. Then Ehud approached him while he was sitting alone in his upstairs room where it was cool. Ehud said, this is the message, I have a message from God for you. And the king stood up from his throne. Ehud reached out his left hand, took the sword um, from his right thigh, and plunged it into Eglon's belly. Even the handle went in after the blade, and Eglon's fat, check this out, it closed in over it, so that Ehud did not withdraw the sword from his belly, and the waist came out. This dude's waist came out. Ehud escaped by the way of the porch, closing and locking the doors of the upstairs room behind him. Ehud was gone when Eglon's servants came in, because remember he told them, the king told them to go out. They looked and found the doors of the upstairs room locked and thought he was relieving himself in the cool room. Why? Because like his waist came out. It smelled. They're thinking this dude, I mean, he's a extremely fat guy. He's probably going to the bathroom. So they're thinking this dude is probably going to the bathroom. And so they're waiting. The servants waited until it became embarrassing. So they're waiting crazy long and saw that he was still not opening the doors of the upstairs room. So they took the key and opened the doors and there was their Lord lying dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while the servants waited. He passed the Jordan near the carved images and reached Sierra. After he arrived, he sounded the ram's horn throughout the hill country of Ephraim. The Israelites came down with him from the hill country and he became their leader. He told them, follow me because the Lord has handed over your enemies, the Noahites to you. So they followed him, captured the fords of the Jordan leading to Moab and did not allow anyone to cross over. At that time, catches, they struck down about 10,000 
Moabites, all stout and able-bodied men. Not one of them escaped. Moab became subject to Israel that day, and the land had peace for 80 years. Wow. That's a lot of text. There's a lot of stuff that we just read there, so there's a lot of stuff that we could dive into. But something that I want to hit on is it's something about this dude Ehud, this guy that God raised up. So if you caught it in this, the text before this, it said that Ehud was left-handed. Right? He was a left-handed man. And the reason that's significant when we understand this contextually in that day and age, left-handed people were looked at, thought of, and, and treated as if they were disabled. So Ehud, his entire life would have been looked at, thought of, and treated as though he was a disabled man. And he definitely would have been looked at like, there is no way this dude can like use a sword. There ain't no way this dude can go to battle with a sword, right? Like there is, there is no way at all. So in other words, what we understand about Ehud is this dude was one of the most unlikely, unqualified people in the entire nation for God to have raised up to save this nation of Israel. One of the most unlikely people whatsoever, especially when you think about the way that this dude did it. He did it with a sword by literally straight up cutting down, killing the king himself with a sword. Like one of the most unlikely, unqualified people doing it one of the most unlikely, um, crazy, mind-blowing ways the entire nation would have never thought, never thought a guy like Ehud would have been able to do this. But God loves, man. God loves using some of the most unlikely, unqualified people to do extraordinary things. And check out what the Apostle Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 1, 27. It says, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And I love what Timothy Keller, he's a well-known pastor, um, theologian, writes a lot of, incredible books. I encourage you to go and read his stuff. Awesome. He's, he's actually thought of it by many people today as like the present day C.S. Lewis. And this is what Timothy Keller says about Ehud. He says, Ehud points us to Jesus. He also points us to ourselves. God uses a left-handed deliverer, catch this, to save a left-handed people. See, what we learn from Ehud is this. God loves, he loves to use some of the most unlikely unqualified, less than people for some of his greatest work. And he does it intentionally because at the end of the day, he wants us to know exactly who it was who accomplished the mission. It wasn't some man. It was God. It wasn't some nobody that was looked at as a, as a failure. He was looked at as a disabled guy named Ehud. It wasn't some you know, guy named Othniel. It wasn't Moses or Joshua. It wasn't Joseph or Abraham or any of these other guys. It was always and has always been, will always be God. It's always been God. Throughout the course of history, God has continued to raise up some of the most unlikely, least qualified people to do extraordinary things. And hear me on this. Do not ever think that you are too far from God for him to save you or too broken for God to use you. You're not too broken for God to use you. God loves, loves, loves using broken people, struggling people, some of the most unlikely people to accomplish some of his greatest tasks. And something else we have to understand is just like Ehud, man, we're all imperfect. Every single one of us is imperfect. Every single one of us is unlikely. Every single one of us is unqualified from the world's standards. 
None of us even deserve, man, that the breath in our lungs, let alone salvation from God, and then to be used by God. None of us. So don't look at other people, like throughout the course of history, or even maybe in today's world, like, you know, think of people like, you know, Billy Graham, or C.S. Lewis, or Tozer, or, or even back in the Bible time, like Paul, and Peter, and King David, and you're like, man, there's no way I could ever do anything like that. Like, how in the world did that guy do that? There is no way that I could, I mean, I, I struggle to even tell somebody about Jesus. Like, I can't do that. Because guys, listen, it was never about those people. It, it was never about what they did. In fact, on their own, they could not have accomplished any of that stuff. It has always been and it will always be about what God has done. God is always the true hero of the story. He's always the man working behind the other man in these stories. And lastly, I wanna end with this verse, verse 31. It says, after Ehud, Shamgar, son of Anath, became judge. He also delivered Israel, striking down 600 Philistines with a cattle broad. Man, 600 Philistines with a cattle broad. That's crazy. And guys, listen again, don't, don't confuse these stories. When you read these stories all throughout the Bible and in the, in the book of Judges, this isn't a collection of stories about a bunch of guys that saved a nation. This is a story about a bunch of guys that were used by God, the one true deliverer, the one true savior to save his nation. That's what this is about. And all these other little saviors, all these other little deliverers, judges, all point to the real ultimate savior, the ultimate judge, the ultimate deliverer, which is Jesus Christ, God in flesh, who not only came to the earth to, to deliver and to save one nation, the nation of Israel, but he came to the earth to deliver, to save the entire world, man. The entire world. But the sad reality is just like the Israelites, so often we tend to forget, don't we? And we tend to, to sprint in 180 degrees, the opposite direction of God, chasing after our own selfish desires over and above in place of God himself. So often we do the same thing, just like the Israelites, time and time again, forgetting who God is, what he's done for us, and who he's calling us, you, to be. And just like the Israelites, who time and time again continued to disobey, continued to sprint in the opposite direction, continued to fail God, time and time again, what did God do? Time and time again, he, he never failed them. He was right there for them. Time and time again, he was there with arms open wide, just waiting for them to call out to him, to cry out to him. And as soon as they did, no matter what, no matter how many times, no matter how long, no matter how bad it was, regardless of the past, he was right there with arms open wide, ready to catch them, ready to help them, save them, and provide for them. Why? Because he loved them because he loved them. And guys, the same thing is true today. Listen to me, regardless of your past, regardless of what you have or have not done, regardless of even the pit that you might find yourself in like we were talking about earlier, regardless of any of that, God loves you. He's right there beside you, he's not left you. He will never leave you as long as you have breath in your lungs. All he's waiting on you to do, just like he was waiting with the Israelites in this situation time and time again. He's waiting on us time and time again. He's just waiting on us to cry out to him, to call out to him. And it's not that, again, we have to give him all this faith. We have to give him miles and miles of faith. He's waiting on us to give him those inches of faith, just to trust him, to call out to him, 
And then he does, he does the rest. He does the rest. As the worship team comes up, I'm going to go ahead and invite them up. If you're somebody that's never, never responded to the gospel, if you've never responded to Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross, our true deliverer, our true judge and savior, that not only again came to save one nation, the nation of Israel, he came to save all of us. And he's just waiting for us to respond, to move in his direction, to cry out to him. If you've never made that commitment and taken that step of faith, man, I want to encourage you, don't wait. Don't wait. The work's already been done. He's just waiting there again with arms open wide, waiting for us to respond. The Word tells us that he, he stands at the door and knocks. So when you think about somebody knocking, he's patient. He's a gentleman. He loves us. He's waiting on us to make the move. He spanned the distance from heaven to earth and died in our place simply to give us the choice, give us a chance to respond. That's how much he loves us. That's how much he loves you. So wherever you're at, no matter what you've done, no matter where you find yourself, you've not drifted too far. That's impossible. You cannot drift too far. The God of the universe is much bigger than your problems. He's much bigger than anything in this world, anything that can ever be thrown out of us. No matter where you, you're at, no matter what you've done, he's right there waiting with arms open wide. And we say this all the time, he will meet you where you're at. Just like he met the, the Israelites right where they were at in bondage and slavery time and time again, he will meet you right where you're at, no matter where that is, even at the bottom of the barrel. And he will save you where you're at. And for those of us that are Christians, whatever God's putting on your heart, however he's calling you to respond, because this, is, this isn't, salvation isn't just like this, this thing where we get saved and then that's it. You know, we just wait until heaven. We got this ticket to heaven and we're just going to ride that train until we get there. That's not what this is about, man. This is about continually being made and molded more and more into the image of Jesus. So ask yourself, ask God, what, what is it that you're, you're calling me to do? How are you calling me to respond? Is there a certain area in my life that I need to take more seriously are there idols that I've been holding on to and by going through this cycle where I've been forgetting about you and I've been chasing after my own desires in my life whatever that is as we stand I'm going to encourage you to go ahead and stand we'll worship together one last time and whatever God is calling you to do however he's calling you to respond you take that time to respond to him he loves you he's right here waiting on you with arms open wide Guys, first off, I just want to say thank you for joining us today for the sermon. And uh, whether you're somebody that's come to our church or you're somebody that lives locally, you go to another church, maybe you don't even live here. Um, I just want I just want to say first and foremost, thank you for joining us. And uh, I, I want to encourage you to, to respond in some way today because, you know, when we hear a sermon, when we read the Bible, when we, um, whatever it may, may be, the point of that is, um, for God to speak to us in some way, shape, or form. And so if you are a Christian, um, you've been a seasoned Christian, you know the Lord already, then the way that we can respond is just by, you know, asking Him, God, what do you want me to do with the convictions that you're giving me uh, based on this sermon, the way that you're speaking to me? What do you want me to do? And then respond to that. Maybe it's an area of your life that you've been holding on to um, and, and you haven't been giving it to Him. And I want to encourage you to give that to Him and step out in faith. Or maybe if it's, um, you know, some unbelief that you've had and, and God has really convicted you of some things. 
Um, you know, whatever it may be for you, it's different for everyone. I want to encourage you to respond to God and, and step in His direction. And, and the other thing too is if, if you are somebody that maybe you've listened to this and you've never responded to that gospel message, you've never been, been impacted by that gospel message, but now something is happening, God is kind of stirring in your heart and in your mind a little bit, then I want to encourage you to step out in faith, respond to that gospel message. And throughout the book of Acts, um, Acts tells us our history as a church. Uh, it shows us that you know, what that response looks like. So number one is to repent. And this word repent, all that means is just to turn from, you know, our sinful ways, our sinful desires, you know, turn from making ourselves God and all these other things in life God and turn to God and just give Him our life. Um, and, and then on top of that response, after the repentance, it comes something else. It's called baptism. And, and baptism is so key. It's so important. It's seen all throughout um, that book and Acts and, and the importance and significance of it. Um, it's this symbol of death to the old self and, and then um, birth to uh, this new life in Christ. And we're, 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 uh, we die with Christ to the old self and we are raised with Christ to, to walk in this new life. And it's a command from Jesus. So I want to encourage you, if you have made that commitment to Christ, if you've stepped out um, and you are wanting to follow Christ, then I want to encourage you to take that next step and be baptized somewhere. Whether it's if you have a local church that you want to go be baptized at, I encourage you to do that. Um, if you don't have a church, we would love to be able to celebrate that with you um, here. But I encourage you first and foremost to do that, to, to talk with someone, um, to get counsel on what this means, to seek discipleship as well. So. Um, I encourage you to do those things. We would love to talk with you. We are praying for you. I want you to know that you are loved and you are prayed for. So if you're ready to take that next step in your relationship with Christ, um, and if you want to take that next step with us, then we, are, we, we would welcome you with open arms. And so there's some links that we're going to provide below for you. Uh, please check that out. Um, and again, if you, if you have any prayer requests, um, please contact us. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to talk with you. And we're excited about taking this next step with you.